0: Hello, you're listening to No Such Word As Can't with me, Hazel McBride. I was always told growing up that there was no such word as can't, and I genuinely believe that that mentality instilled a belief in me that anything was possible if I just set my mind to it. As someone who started off with a seemingly impossible dream and somehow made it my reality, I want to help more people achieve their goals by giving them actionable advice as well as sharing stories from others who have done the same. Today I get to sit down with someone that I met at the EWM conference earlier this year, um, Dr. Audra Ames, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me Hazel, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to chat with you and for you to share all of your experience and stories with my listeners. Um, So anyone who maybe hasn't read anything about you or knows what you're doing, uh, could you give a little intro, please? Um,
1: Yes. So I am a bioacoustician, which means that I study the acoustics of living things. And in particular, I am most interested in the communication of toothed whales, Um, So this is anything from bottlenose dolphins to belugas to narwhals. Um, I've started some work with rizzo's dolphins. Um, So, yeah, those are mainly my focal species at the moment. I also do some work with echolocation. But my main passion and everything that I'm very super interested in is is the communication stuff. I love that.
0: (laughs) So what first inspired you to care about marine life? And where are you from? So originally because I, from- I don't know, but like for my listeners, where are you from? Because, uh, yeah, maybe that helped inspire you.
1: <laughs> well, um, I'm, I'm from Dallas, Texas originally. There's not a lot of ocean around Dallas, Texas, but, uh, I, I grew up with a close family friend, um, that studied dolphins. Uh, he was a dolphin cognition and behavior guy. And so I saw this incredible career my whole life growing up and just really wanted to do something with marine mammals my entire life. Um, So I kind of followed in his footsteps and joined his lab and he was actually ended up being my graduate um, advisor. So basically kind of wanted to do this my entire life. It's uh, yeah, it's basically been something that I've been very passionate about for a very long time.
0: That's so incredible to have had such you know a great role model within you know the career that you wanted to have around you from such a young age.
1: Yeah. Um, it actually basically shaped my whole educational experience as well because I was able to lean on him for advice in terms of how to approach graduate programs, um, what programs would be the best uh, in terms of undergraduate stuff in order to be able to kind of progress into his lab later on. Um, So this is Dr. Stan Kuchai, by the way, if I I didn't mention his name. Um, He worked at the uh, Marine Mammal Behavior and Cognition Lab at the University of Southern Mississippi. Um, So he was a very good family friend. And basically, um, yeah, just really inspired me. I watched his work my whole life and just really inspired me to, to follow in his footsteps.
0: That's incredible. So where did you end up going for your undergrad? So my undergrad was done at Southern Methodist
1: University in Dallas, Texas. So I stayed kind of near to home when I did, uh, did undergrad stuff.
0: (laughs) And after your undergrad, did you, did it help to convince you that you really wanted to continue going into research? Like, did you ever kind of sway from that path?
1: So interestingly enough, um, I finished my undergrad in 2012, and then I did a year looking at uh, doing um, a smoking cessation study, looking at um, human behavior and trying to uh, end in smoking with implementing exercise and more healthy um, habits. That really solidified that I wanted to do marine mammal research. (laughs) More than anything, working with people, I knew I wanted to do research. I still maintain that as the idea in my head, but I just really snuffed out any sort of behavioral psychology with people, you know, very, very quickly doing that year. Um, so animal behavior, I feel like is actually much harder in the end than human behavior, um, but it's something that I absolutely love. So uh, for me, it's a lot easier than than sticking with human research.
0: Yeah, I feel like a lot of people um, that work with animals work with animals for a reason. Um, Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely, even though they're harder to communicate with, I definitely have a lot more patience with animals than I do with humans. Exactly. I feel the exact same. (laughs) So after you did that study, where did you go on to? Uh, So from there, I actually went
1: to and started my graduate program. Um, So I... Joined the University of Southern Mississippi, the Marine Mammal Behavior and Cognition Lab, Stan's Lab, in August of 2013, and I did my master's there. And then uh, in 2016, I was recruited, um, after I finished my master's, to come do my PhD at Oceanographic in Valencia, Spain. So they had a beluga baby that was about to be born and we really wanted to study his vocal development. So I came a few months before he was born um, and then spent 2016, 2017, 2018 um, basically just living with the belugas at Oceanographic I was there every day I observed their behavior and recorded their vocalizations every day and that became my PhD project Um, and so yeah yeah that was uh, my next step.
0: And what was it like for you living in the states and then relocating over to Spain was that a big leap for you were you excited about it?
1: It was a huge leap. It was very, very exciting, but I had no idea what to expect. And I had zero Spanish. So I decided to, even though I'm from Texas, take French in high school. Um, so not- How to super, you
0: too.
1: <laughs> Right? Not super helpful in the long run. If I could change one thing in my high school, I'd go back and do that. Um, but so I came over here and it was a complete culture shock. Everything from what time they ate, Um, how many times a day the Spanish eats? So all five times a day. Um, and the language of course, I had learned that quickly. Um, the, the work-life was, the work-life balance was very different. So there was a lot of things that I had to get used to in that first year, my first year doing my PhD. Um, but it's been an incredible experience. I absolutely would not change it.
0: And how did you manage, um, moving so far away from you know home and family and potentially not really not really having a support system over there how how did you navigate that so that's definitely been the trickiest part i mean moving
1: anywhere new especially as an adult the older we get the harder it it, it gets to be able to kind of create that community um, i have found a lot of community through through athletics through doing sports um through gyms um my dance studio Um, so that's been very nice because those are very international hubs. There's lots of people there from different places. Uh, and I'm lucky enough to live in a big enough place where there is a big expat community. And then I've also made very close friends with some of my colleagues at work and other students that were studying while I was here. So that's been one thing that's been very helpful. And then with my family and friends at home, I just try to see them as much as I possibly can. Um, one thing that I always try to do is go home for Christmas. I think my mom would be devastated if I did not go home for Christmas. So every year I go home at least two weeks to some, to maybe a month, sometimes even longer. And so that's very, very nice. Um, my mom will come and join me at conferences sometimes if they're in Canada or the States, somewhere nearby where she can get to. And then I'm lucky that my family is able to, to come over to Europe sometimes. So it's it's been hard but we've been able to to make it work i'm actually leaving tomorrow to go see my aunt and uncle in in italy for a few days so i'm very excited about that
0: oh well you've obviously managed to make that adjustment very well cuz you've been there for so long now does it does it feel like home
1: it does and it does not still i mean i think nothing will home will always be home, um, whether you live there or not, where you grew up, where your family is. Uh, I mean, that will always have a very special place. But Valencia definitely has a special place in my heart too. I mean, I've been here, yes, for seven years now. Um, and it's its a really special place. I mean, i it's gonna take a lot for me to wanna leave here for sure. <laughs>
0: Yeah and when you went over there you know obviously you were you were young still you know excited very you know open-eyed like what are we going to do there's a baby beluga about to be born it must have been incredibly exciting to to be around that in that moment.
1: Yeah it was I mean an experience of a lifetime to be able to witness the the live birth of a beluga Um, the excitement from everybody that was there the incredible teamwork I mean the, the the oceanographic team that was here at that time was absolutely phenomenal and um really made sure that you know Yoka and the cap were were very well taken care of um I don't think my study would have been possible without without that team for sure um but I mean it was just to see a baby animal be born in any instance, but to have it be a baby beluga, a species that you just like love so much. And you've been watching mom every day for three months and dad every day for three months and waiting for this moment and seeing um, mom's belly get bigger and bigger. And then all of a sudden there's this little baby. And I mean, I use little very lightly because there's still, beluga calves are still the size of a human being. Um, but I mean, it was just unbelievable moment that finally we've been all waiting for anticipation and the anticipation so exciting and then here he is and he was just as amazing as we were all hoping he would be.
0: Yeah for anyone who hasn't been lucky enough and I know we're definitely in the minority of people who've been lucky enough to see especially a marine mammal um, give birth it's definitely a very special moment and also sometimes quite stressful too um you know it's it's an air breathing mammal giving birth in water right. um so obviously there's definitely risk factors involved both in the wild and in human care and like you said we do everything that we can to make sure everything goes smoothly were there any moments that you really remember I remember when I first saw a dolphin be born like I, I feel like that image is like imprinted in my memory of like watching those flukes come out Yeah, I mean, for me, the thing that
1: really, really sticks out is, yes, when he started fluking and then when he was first free of mother and did those like little awkward swims (laughs) to the surface that they do because they're just kind of out of the womb. So they're all kind of crunched up still a little bit. Um, Those were the most precious. That is like seared in my brain, him swimming to the surface for the first time. Absolutely amazing.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a wonderful moment to be a part of. And were you working at that moment? Like, were you already kind of, did you have a hydrophone in the water? Were you studying communication literally from the moment of birth?
1: Yes, so um, I had been collecting data for the prepartum period, uh, I think since about early September of 2016, and Kilu was born November 15th of 2016. Um, so I've been doing behavioral observations with with paired with acoustic data for several months already. And then it got to be kind of mid-November, and Kilu, uh, the baby had still not been born yet. And we had a full moon coming up, and everybody was kind of betting that it was gonna happen on that night. So I went home, and then about four o'clock in the morning, sure enough, I got a phone call from our our head vet. Um Daniel Garcia here telling me to come, 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 come. So I, I went to the facility, I put the hydrophone in the water and then um, we had the baby about 12 hours later. And then I continued to record and do behavioral observations until probably about midnight that night. So from wow. four in the morning till till midnight, I was there um, watching and recording and trying to stay awake.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people don't understand the amount of work that really goes into it, you know, how much we are all, it's like, you're just, you're on call. Like if there is an animal that's pregnant or if there is a calf, it is, there is always someone there. And obviously in your case, there were also trainers, there were vets and there were the researchers, which is great, you know, but it really is the type of job where it's more than just your work. It's also, you know, your passion. You care about these animals. Like you, you obviously care about, the findings that you were going to have from observing them then yeah no
1: absolutely like putting it like being on call is the perfect way to put it because you go and you collect and you do what you need to do when the animals are there and they're ready for you and I mean it's the same in the field as it would be Uh, at the facility. So when the animal behavior is good at the facility, that's when you go, you collect data. When the animals appear and they're there in the field, that's when you go, you collect data. So you just kind of wait for whenever the animals are, are going to do what they're going to do and just be patient until it happens.
0: Yeah, definitely. And what were some of the things that you did observe between mother and calf in those early stages?
1: So Yolka was very, very, very possessive of her calf. This was um, the second calf that she had given birth to, but um, he was the first calf that, that lived past a month. Um, so it was really, during that first week, critical for the team to be able to uh, set up uh, a relationship, not only the with continuing the relationship they had with Yolka, but, but building that, um, extending towards Yolka now with the calf, and uh, they needed to work on Yolka being able to trust them with the calf and be able to take the calf. So that was a huge thing that that we looked at, and then also Yolka just being, you know, a very still new mom, um, not really having a lot of experience in the mom department. It was very interesting to see her grow and go from kind of not knowing what to do to all of a sudden being like mom of the year, like. I mean, taking care of this calf absolutely, you know, just to the best of her ability. And so that was so incredible to see as well.
0: Yeah. So, how long did you stay on that project before you moved on to something different? Because you've also done field work too. Yes. Um, So, I finished
1: that data collection for that project. That was my PhD project in 2018. Um, And then, pretty immediately, had a bunch of other irons in the fire. So, Um, I I worked on uh, a study on sound production mechanisms. Um, So basically where and how toothed whales produce sounds. Um, We did some stuff on echolocation with our belugas here at Oceanographic. Um, We have been doing um, an fMRI study with one of our dolphins where basically we've trained this animal to to basically leave the water and come with us to a hospital that's down the road and go into an MRI machine. We're looking at where the sensory areas are in the brain for, for vocalizations. Um, and then I also work with uh, narwhals um, that started in about 2019 and I started the field work in the Azores in uh, last year in 2022. Um, so that's with Rizzo's dolphins, looking at the potential for either group or individually specific signals in, in these guys.
0: I have I could talk to you for hours about all of this. I find like <laughs> about like really in detail because I find it also interesting, but I feel like a lot of people might potentially ask, well, what, what's the importance of studying how they communicate? Like, is it to, I think a lot of people maybe think, is it to understand what exactly what they're saying to each other or figure out quote unquote their language Um, and maybe don't understand why it's so important for us to understand how they talk to one another or teach one another. Could you provide some insight into that? Yeah, of course. I think um, there's so many different
1: things, so many different aspects that are important about understanding their communication. Um, First, I mean, we we can understand a lot about their behavior, Um, We can understand a lot about um, what can adversely affect them um, by looking at things like anthropogenic noise and how that um, human-made noise and noise pollution and how that impacts their vocalizations. But we can't really get to that level until we know more about their communication signals because we need to know how they're used, how far apart they might be used from different animals. Are these uh, vocalizations that are used within, you know, tens of meters to hundreds of meters, um, how they might be impacted by noise that way. We need to know in kind of what situations, what context these animals are producing these noises, are these vocalizations in. Um, so are these critical communication signals between mothers and calves? Are these um, communication signals between pair bonded males that are trying to hang on to a female? Um, Are these communication signals between social group members that are trying to maintain cohesiveness? Maybe there's a predator around. Um, So it's important to understand all of these variables um, in terms of how humans might actually impact these signals. But also the other thing is just from the scientific communication perspective and the perspective that humans absolutely love understanding how these guys communicate. You know, they're a charismatic megafauna. They make really cool sounds and they do so for reasons that we have no idea. We're just starting to scratch the surface of, but people love learning about this stuff. And so that makes a great opportunity to be able to kind of engage people with these species and make them, um, put them on a level where people can understand because we understand languages and we understand names and we understand these types of things being done in these contexts, we understand that infants babble, and that maybe beluga babies babble too when when they're um, when they're very young, and so this makes people very engaged with with learning about this type of stuff. And um, we find that, of course, if people love something, they're much more willing to protect it. So um, that also helps us be able to protect them against these these measures of you know anthropogenic noise human-made noise because we have the public that's backing us too because they understand these animals uh, on a level that we're also trying to understand them
0: yeah it's just it's a nice big loop isn't it you know you're researching exactly. something you're educating people about something they care about it and then they make choices and changes that's off the back of your research that's then going to help what you were studying in the first place
1: um, exactly
0: when you moved from studying dolphins to belugas, were you surprised or overwhelmed at how much more vocal they were? Like, did it give you more work?
1: Oh, my God. Yes, actually.
0: Um, so totally two different
1: types of communicators. Um, belugas have these re- really just crazy vocalizations I was not ready for. Uh, not to say that bottlenose dolphins are simple vocalizers; they they definitely have their crazy array of vocalizations as well. Um, but belugas were just so much more complex than what I was ready for, and sounds I had never seen before, sounds I had no idea how to classify. Um, so I was really fortunate that uh, Valeria Vergara had joined the study as my PhD supervisor. She was actually the one that had recruited me to come over here to begin with, and so she is the leading expert on on beluga vocalizations and was able to kind of guide me and and help me through the the tangled um mess of of beluga vocalizations the beluga vocal catalog
0: (laughs) yeah i know from personal experience of working even just with killer rails they would have certain vocalizations that would just go right through you and if you if you had a headache you know, if it was just not your day, that I can't even imagine how people working with Bulagas feel sometimes, especially in some of the indoor facilities as well, because that echoes. Oh yeah. Yeah. We we had our male here, our our
1: big male Cairo, um, who had such loud vocalizations I could hear them all the way into our lab um, that was outside of the beluga building and down the street a bit <laughs> when he was really really wanting uh, to to get the trainer attention so that was his trainer vocalization um, but yeah killer whales also have very very complicated vocal repertoires really kind of the the hardest guys in terms of understanding their vocalizations are belugas, narwhals, killer whales, and pilot whales. They all have these really, really complicated vocalizations. But it's interesting because they all kind of have um, different societal structures that, you know, um, would play a role into how these vocalizations develop. So um, yeah, it's all, it's all very, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's definitely worth researching because there's just, there's so much there that we haven't even discovered yet, or just, we're just scratching the surface with them. Um, Absolutely. but when you went out to do some field research what was that like comparing it to you know obviously I feel like researchers can get quite lucky coming into zoos and aquariums because it can be a very controlled setting you know trainers can really help to set up the session kind of exactly as you guys want it we can control for more variables obviously in the field it's going to be a lot more difficult what was Absolutely. that like for you going from one to the other
1: So I joined Nova Atlantis and Dr. Karen Hartman um, uh, off of Pico in the Azores last year. She um, runs the Rizzo's project, which basically is this long-term project. She's been doing this for almost 25 years, um, studying the same resident uh, Rizzo's groups that live off of Pico Island. Um, Their behavior all year round some years and really focusing on the male alliances, the male groups, their social structures. Um, she's done an incredible job building a catalog that like no other for, especially this species, but for a few other species as well. Um, so that in itself, getting to just go and learn from this um, incredible woman who's built this project and uh, who knows so much about these animals. Like it's unreal how much she knows not only just about the Rizzo's, but all of the animals um, from uh, that surround Pico. Um, so getting to learn from her was so, so cool, but also just getting to see the animal behavior very unfiltered. Um, it's, it's so, you're waiting for the animals to come. The animals come, you go to them and you get there and you have no idea what's going to happen. So Karen was actually very good about, you know, kind of feeling the mood of the animals. You know, she knows these animals so well. She's studying them for so long. Um, She's so good at predicting what's going to happen next. But sometimes just the most incredible things that blow your mind that we've never even seen before happen. Um, We were having some moments like that in this field season where it's just animal behavior we've never like the Karen has never seen before we've never seen before um, from some of these so we had this one male group um, that is very well established and one day we were out and we were collecting vocalizations and everything from them photo IDs um, and and uh, behavioral observations from them and all of a sudden they just took off and they were just going, 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 um, just flying at massive speeds. And so we were following them from a distance, just kind of seeing what they were taking off to. And, um, we went miles, we followed them for miles at this insane speed. And this is something that they do, um, when males are chasing a, a female for consortia behaviors. So we've seen this type of behavior before, but, um, So we were expecting kind of that at the other end. When we get there and all six to eight of this social group jump out of the air at once and just like pile drive on top of the social group that was there. And it was the most insane thing any of us have ever seen just to see this powerhouse, this wall of animals come up and just just crash. Um, Onto the animals that were socializing, and in the end, it looked like um,
0: this group. It's like a frat party, being like, "We're here."
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, even so, just uh, like that, like, "Hey, we're joining the party," but um, also, kind of like, "We're here." You know, there's no doubt about it, and this is our area, Um, because we we we're never able to 100% figure out exactly what was going on but karen was speculating that there was no target um there was no female that they were that we thought that they they might be after it was another group um potentially of animals that were Rizzo's dolphins but um not residents of the area mm. so this resident group kind of came out of nowhere at them to be like this is our space you get out of here and it was just absolutely nuts.
0: that's incredible and For me personally, you know, from a training background, I love how much we can learn from our animals in human care and then apply that out in the field you know obviously not so much for risso's dolphins that's not really a species that um is seen widely in human care um but definitely your work with belugas has been helping that um and in a very surprising species uh one that we don't really hear of very often um can you talk a little bit about how you've extrapolated some of your research to try and help wild narwhal populations absolutely um so
1: in doing my PhD study, I learned a lot about how belugas vocalize, which, vocalize, which vocalizations they, they produce, as well as how these vocalizations are used somewhat contextually. Um, and my PhD supervisor, Valeria, uh, she has done a lot of work with belugas on a very specific type of call called the contact call. And this is a long duration, um, very complicated, but very highly stereotyped call that basically means that every time you see it or hear it, it's identical almost to every other emission of this call type. Um, And and the idea is that these contact calls function as um, a call that belugas will use to broadcast their identity to their other social group members. Um, so basically saying, hey, I'm Audra, I'm over here. Um, and this would be something that would be unique to each animal. So that's what we were looking at in my my study, as well as a bunch of other studies that Valeria has done, but seeing how this contact call actually develops in young animals. Um, and so I, I reached out to my colleagues, um, with the, Nar- with the East Greenland narwhal population. So this is Susanna Blackwell of uh, Green Ridge Sciences and then Audi Terbo and Mads-Peter Hyde Jorgensen of the Greenland Institute of Natural Resources. So they have this massive data set um, from narwhals in the East Greenland area um, collected from 2013 to 2018, I believe, 2019 maybe. And um, I wanted to, they were looking for, I I actually saw Susanna present at a conference her, uh, the beginnings of a project on potential contact calls in narwhals. And I was looking at her slides and listening to these sounds going, boy, these look a lot like Beluga contact calls. This is very interesting. And at the end of, of her talk, Susanna was like, if anybody has anything, you know, any suggestions or any any." Thing they can offer in support for this project, we'd love to talk about it. You know, please, please contact me. It took me about a year, and I finally sent her an email um, after I'd gotten done with my PhD, and just went to town. Just kind of was like, okay, these are these look like these calls in Belugas, and um, you know, I'm so interested in what you guys are doing. How can I help? Um, And Susanna and I started off our relationship so end of 2019, and um, have just worked phenomenally on this, they had a data set of over 22,000 wow. narwhal calls that we have gone through manually. So we've looked at every single one of these calls and decided what type of call it was going to be. Um, but my, my trial run kind of um, before I actually had access to that massive, beautiful, wonderful data set was um, to look at uh, just one acoustic record of a narwhal female. Who, when she was tagged, the tagging team noticed that there was a calf nearby, and so immediately uh, I was able to see not only her specific contact call um, that she was producing while she was being tagged, and then we continued to see that call being produced across the days that she was that the acoustic tag stayed on or stayed with her, um, but. We were able to immediately identify narwhal calf calls too for the first time Um, because I'd had this experience looking at what um, the calls of young belugas looked like and how they developed and it was so so very easy to see that okay in the narwhal which is a very close cousin of the beluga um, this this call looks and acts very similar to what we see in young belugas so we were able to um, kind of separate out these are moms' calls. We think these are babies' calls, and produce kind of the first uh, report, the first instance of, of narwhal potential mother calf communication and, and baby vocalizations.
0: Isn't that incredible, though, that you research that you've done with belugas in human care can be used to help better understand a species that does not exist in human care? Absolutely. Absolutely, and I think it's absolutely, it's so critical that we use, that we have these animals
1: in managed care that we try to take advantage of anything that they are offering to yeah. us data-wise and be able to apply that to animals that we otherwise would not get this information from.
0: Well, um, Austin Allen recorded for the podcast. Um, he, his episode will come out a couple of weeks before this one. And he was nice. talking about the research he's doing with killer whales is going to be extrapolated not only for wild killer whales, but also hopefully for larger whales in the wild as well of different species. Um, So they can get Amazing. more of a, a similarity between larger animals, larger cetaceans compared to smaller cetaceans for anyone who's listening to this and is interested in pursuing a career in marine mammal research what advice would you give them
1: um well buckle up for a lot of school uh, so <laughs> if you want if you want to pursue science in any sort of way you definitely need to have um at least a i would say master's at this point um in all honesty i think Especially as people more more and more people go to university after high school, um, because having a master's in any sort of kind of scientific or math career is very important. Moving forward, it also gives you um, an opportunity to kind of dip your toe in the water of re- research and and find out if it's for you. Um, So, yeah, I mean, going to university, really exploring labs, exploring areas of research, finding out um, what it is that you're passionate about early on is always very helpful because if you do want to do research and you do want to continue um, in a field towards marine mammal science, then kind of knowing the species that you love, knowing the species that um, you're most interested in, what about these animals? I mean, do you wanna study physiology? Um, do you wanna study uh, cognition? Do you wanna study behavior? Do you wanna do acoustics? Um, will really kind of allow you to focus on one path and start looking for graduate programs that um, that fall into into line with, with, with your passions and your ideas. It's always helpful when you go to a lab um, and talk to a professor about being a prospective student um to have kind of some project ideas in mind um, if research isn't your way to go then do animal behavior internships um, check out facilities that are offering training internships i mean you're going to be scrubbing buckets it's not going to be beautiful work but if you like being around the animals you'll still get to be around the animals and um, that's a way towards starting towards training um so yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of different directions you can go, but I would start there and see kind of what floats your boat at that point.
0: For sure. Well, Audra, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and share all of this with us. I know that everyone will have enjoyed listening to it. Awesome. Thank you for having me again. That was great. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you have enjoyed this week's episode, then please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe and I will catch you all next week.